John 19, 16 through 30. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write, the King of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fill, fill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, in the weeks leading up to Easter, we are uh, looking at the events leading up to and including uh, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and we're asking the question, why did Jesus die, and why does it matter? Uh, this week, we're at the center of it all, because this week, we're looking at the crucifixion itself. What difference does it make in your life? What difference does it make in the world? These are huge questions. Every single one of you walked in here this morning with all kinds of stuff going on in your life. You have questions and problems. You're looking for answers. You have struggles and challenges. You're looking for solutions. You have hopes and dreams. You're looking for um, fulfillment. But we're also all part of a society. 
And that means that your questions, your struggles, your hopes, and your dreams are wrapped up in the state of the world that we live in, wrapped up in our political situation, our environmental situation, our cultural situation. Those things are intimately bound together. And that means that one of the biggest questions we can possibly ask is, how do we find a healing for the world that also brings healing to our lives? And vice versa. How do we find a healing for our lives that actually brings healing to the world? That's one of the most urgent questions facing our society today. So, for instance, Jonathan Haidt is a um, moral and social psychologist at New York University. And he says that if you really want to understand human society, there are two things that you need to know about human beings. The first is we're tribal by nature. The second thing is that human beings don't use reason to discover truth. We use reason to defend truth that we already believe. But here's the thing. Jonathan Haidt also says that it's not like we're locked into those things and can never escape. He says tribes can learn to work together. Human beings can learn to discover new truths. And when that happens, the result is, he says, there are two forces at work in every society. On the one hand, you have forces of division. Those are the things that tear us apart. On the other hand, he says that there are forces of unity, things like shared beliefs, shared values, shared traditions. These are forces that bind us together, these forces of unity. Jonathan Haidt says that when the forces of unity weaken, then you can expect revolution, chaos, um, cycles of declining trust, and eventually decay in a society. So, I was watching a talk in which he's explaining all of this, and he compared 2016 to 1968. In 1968, there was a lot of violence in our country. Martin Luther King was assassinated. We just actually marked that anniversary this past week. A couple of months after that, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. Uh, but even more than that, the Vietnam War was tearing our country apart. Jonathan Haidt points out that the forces of violence that were tearing our country apart were much stronger in 1968. But because the forces of unity that bind us together were much stronger then, the country was able to make it through. And he points out that now, in 2000 now 2019, that the forces of uh, division that are tearing us apart um, are, st are still great, but that the forces of unity have been weakened so much, we've done so much damage to them, that the future of our country is really uncertain. In fact, he calls it one of the greatest emergencies of our time. Where are you going to find a hope for the world that makes a difference in your life? Because those two things, your life and this world, are intimately bound together. The cross of Jesus Christ gives it to us. It's healing for your life. It's healing for the world. How? Let's see three things from this passage this morning, realizing that we could spend weeks um, peering into the cross of Jesus. Three things this morning, though. We're going to see the failure of worldly kingdoms, the triumph of Jesus' kingdom, and lastly, the new life that results. Okay? The failure of worldly kingdoms, the triumph of Jesus' kingdom, and the new world that results. So first, the failure of worldly kingdoms. In verse 19, Pilate, um, he writes an inscription over Jesus' head. It says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Now, 
this is Pilate's way of getting back at the religious leaders. He's basically just mocking them. He does not believe that Jesus is a king, and they don't believe it either. But what the world is unable to see, the gospel of John wants us to see Because one of the things we saw, if you were with us last week, over and over, the Gospel of John uses irony as a way of of showing us deeper truths. So, for instance, if you go back to chapter 11, um, the religious leaders are talking about Jesus, and they're trying to figure out what to do about Jesus. And at one point, the high priest Caiaphas, he says, it's better that one man should die for the sake of the people. He was speaking better than he knew. Or in chapter 12, Jesus is talking and he says, if the Son of Man is lifted up, he will draw all humanity to himself. Now, it sounds like he's talking about exaltation, being exalted, and he is, but he's talking about being exalted on the cross. Over and over again, the Gospel of John is constantly saying things to us that on the surface, they mean one thing, but when you dig down deeper, they're telling us something far deeper about ultimate reality. The same thing is happening here. In this passage, the Gospel of John wants us to see that Jesus isn't just king of the Jews. He's king of the cosmos. He's king of everything. He's king of the whole world. And that what what the world is unable to see, the Gospel of John wants us to see. And you see that especially in the fact that um, John makes a point of telling us that this inscription over Jesus' head was written in three languages, Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. It's representing all the nations of the world. Aramaic was the local dialect of the Jewish people. Uh, Latin was the official language of the Roman Empire. And Greek was, it was like the universal language that everybody used to communicate in a pluralistic culture. But this doesn't just represent all of the nations of the world. It also represents... Every human institution, human system, and ideology that human beings rely on. So, for instance, Rome was the greatest empire in the world at that time. Rome represents political power. Greece was a center, um, the center of learning and philosophy. It stands for um, reason and rationality, and Israel stands for um, the religious institution. The point is simple. Um, When this inscription tells us, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, it's telling us that Jesus is king over everything and that every other human system will ultimately fail. It's saying politics is great, but it can't heal the world. It's saying that human reason, human rationality, all the wonders of the human mind, science and technology is great, but it can't heal the world. Even human religion, if it's based on human attempts to connect to God, It can't really heal your life, and it can't really heal the world. Here's the point. The the sign over Jesus' head, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, is proclaiming the supremacy of Jesus' kingship over every human institution, every human system, and every human ideology. It's a judgment, really, on the failure of human power to make this world the place that we know it ought to be. And That leads to a real tension for us because the cross is a judgment on the failure of every human system. But look, on the one hand, we all want to make this world a better place. But on the other hand, there's a deep prevailing concern that all of our best human efforts are only making things worse. 
So for instance, there's um, a, a whole movement that has arisen over the past number of years. It's called the New Optimism um, Steven Pinker is a cognitive psychologist, and he's one of the leaders of the New Optimists. In, in fact, the title of his most recent book tells you where they're coming from. It's called Enlightenment Now, uh, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. The New Optimists basically are saying, if you look at the history of humanity, you'll see that over the past 200 years or so, Human beings have been able to make great progress in all kinds of areas that things really are getting better in this world. Statistically, they can show how we've made progress, great progress, uh, in many areas of humanity. But there are a lot of people that uh, look at that and they'll push back a little bit, or maybe a lot, and they'll say, okay, it's one thing to measure things like wealth, um, longevity, um, lower rates of violence, lower rates of disease in the world, all of which is true. But it's one thing to measure those things, but they'll also point out, what about rising rates of anxiety or depression or suicide in our world, especially among young people? Or what about the resurgence of nationalist movements, not just in America, but all over the world? Or what about the state of our environment, the dire situation we're in? Even more than that, a lot of people, many people are, are pointing out that, um, what about meaning? What about all the things that make a human being really a human being and make human life really worth living? How do you measure meaning in the world? What about things like happiness and joy? What about things like hope? What about deep, intimate connection with other human beings that's not mediated by some device. Are we really better now than we used to be? A lot of people are asking these questions. So yes, on the one hand, there are many people that are very optimistic about the state of our world right now, but on the other hand, there's a deep, deep concern about all of the very best human systems possibly even making our world and our lives even worse. And this is not a new concern um, way back in 1940, uh, W.H. Auden, one of the greatest poets and intellectuals of the 20th century, he wrote a poem called The Unknown Citizen. It's uh, basically another inscription. It's, uh, it portrays itself as an inscription on a statue that's been erected in honor of some ideal citizen of the state, but the poor fellow doesn't even have a name. Just in the title of the poem, it says, you know, he's got numbers and letters, but, but the poem, um, the state is holding up this citizen as an example of the ideal citizen and someone who lived a really great, flourishing life. But it's all according to the Bureau of Statistics. So it, it tells us when you read through the poem that the labor union reports that he was a, a wonderful employee. The insurance companies report that he had all the right policies. And the social psychologist reports that he was a very well-adjusted man. He got along with all of his workmates. And the Department of Consumer Affairs reports that he had uh, taken full advantage of the installment plan and had all of the appliances necessary for modern people. According to the standards of the new optimists, this man had a really great life. But then at the very end of the poem, Auden asks the question, and here's how the poem ends. He says, was he free? Was he happy? The question is absurd. Had anything been wrong, we should certainly have heard. His point is simple but devastating. He's saying that, that economic systems, 
political, scientific, technological systems, none of them have the power to ultimately secure human flourishing, far less from being able to measure human flourishing. Fast forward 80 years, and we still have the same dilemma in our lives today. Every human system ultimately fails to produce the healing that our world needs and the healing that our lives need. And it's not just a matter of fixing the systems. It's a matter of recognizing that that none of the systems themselves have the power to bring healing to our lives in the world in the first place. And that's not to say that, that the systems aren't good things or the systems aren't necessary things. They are. We need systems like that in, world, in our world. The point is that we can, can't put our ultimate hope in these things because at best, all these systems can do is address the symptoms of what's really the biggest problem in the world, but none of them can really touch the biggest problem in the world. And that leads to our next point. We've just seen the failure of worldly kingdoms, but secondly, the cross shows us the triumph of Jesus' kingdom. In other words, if you want to know what will really heal the world and heal your life, you can't just address the symptoms Any good doctor will tell you that. You have to get to the root of the problem. That's exactly what the cross of Jesus Christ does. So at the end of this passage, Jesus is nearing death. In verse 28, we read that Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. I thirst. And with these two words, Jesus is telling us what our biggest problem is and how he's solving it. How is that? Because think about this. First of all, why was Jesus complaining of being thirsty? I mean, all of the other physical suffering he endured, he never opened his mouth. He never complained about it. When the soldiers were flogging him, he didn't complain. When they were beating his face with their fists, it it always says he opened not his mouth. When they were crushing the crown of thorns on top of his head, even and especially even when they were driving the nails into his hands and and feet, he never opened his mouth, he never cried out, he never said a word. Why now? The answer is because Jesus isn't just experiencing physical pain here, he's experiencing separation from God. When Jesus says, I thirst, he's not just talking about being physically thirsty. He's talking about the the excruciating agony of being separated from God. Jesus is literally dying from thirst for God. And we know that because over and over again in the Gospel of John, Jesus keeps using water as a metaphor for our relationship with God. Probably the most famous place where he does that is in John chapter 4. He meets a woman at a well, and he points to the well, and he tells her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman says, sir, give me this water. Jesus makes a distinction between physical, earthly water and spiritual, living water. The point is that just as physical water is the most basic necessity for your body, God is the most basic necessity for your soul. The problem is we will drink it pretty much every other well except God. So think about it. And I understand many of us here this morning, you may not be sure what you believe about God or Jesus or Christianity, but if, okay, 
if you were created by a loving, personal God, which is the God that the Bible presents to you, and by the way, only the Bible, no other sacred text presents you with a loving, personal God, okay? If you were created by a loving, personal God, then you need God in your life in the same way that your body needs water. Or to change the metaphor, C.S. Lewis once put it like this. He said, God invented us as a man invents a mach- uh, an engine. A car is made to run on gasoline, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn, or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other If we will not learn to eat the only food the universe grows, we will starve eternally. So here's the question. What are you feeding on? Or, to go back to our metaphor, what well are you drinking from? And how's that working out for you? Are you driven by ambition or a desire, an overwhelming desire for romance or approval or success, or money, or power, or pleasure, or a great performance record. This is our most basic problem. The most basic, overwhelming problem of the human condition is that we drink from every other well except for God. We think we're thirsty for all of these things, when in reality, it's God we're really thirsty for. It's tragic, but it's also what the Bible calls sin. Maybe one of the most poignant places the Bible describes this is in Jeremiah chapter 2. God says this. He says, my people have committed two evils. Okay? Evil. He says, first, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. Second, they have dug cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God is saying that that evil, sin, means that on the one hand, we forsake God. We will not drink from God but we will drink from just about everything else. And they're really good things. Success, honor, pleasure, money, power, family, work, all of it, really good. But if we're drinking from that in order to satisfy the deepest thirst of our heart instead of God, God calls that evil. I mean, that's not the way we normally think of evil or sin. In our modern culture, we have far too superficial, far too shallow a view of what sin really is. We, we think of it as like, just quote, doing bad things. And then we say, well, I've never done any of those things, so therefore I am not a sinner. But the Bible is showing us, Jesus is showing us over and over again that sin is not primarily behavioral. It's not just doing bad things. Sin is primarily relational. It's, it's forsaking God and seeking to satisfy the deepest thirst of our hearts in anything except for God. And that is why no human institution, no matter how wonderful they are, no matter how um, necessary they are, no human institution or system or ideology can really heal our lives or really heal the world because none of those things has the power to get inside of our hearts and heal our relationship with God. So when Jesus says, I thirst, do you now see what's happening to him? To die of thirst was one of the most excruciating things that could happen to a human being. It's like a million flaming daggers burning into your body. But if physical thirst is just a shadow, just a glimpse, just a hint of 
of separation from God, then we can't even begin to imagine the utter torment and agony that Jesus was experiencing on the cross. Jesus was taking the spiritual daggers. Jesus was taking the infinite burning, the scorching furnace of separation from God into his soul. You know, friends, if we insist on drinking from any other fountain uh, except for God himself, if we insist on satisfying the deepest thirsts of our heart in something other than God, then what do we expect God to do about that? Do, Do we expect him to force us to drink from him? What would that even look like? God loves you so much that he says to every single human being, if that's what you really want, not me, but, but whatever it is you're drinking from, then thy will be done. We don't know what we're asking for. Jesus knew, and he took it into the depths of his soul. Jesus took the ravaging, burning thirst of separation from God so that we, so that you, could come to the fountain of living waters and drink for yourself. And one of the most amazing things about all of this is that you see this, all of this, in what the world would call the, a place of, of ultimate shame and defeat and agony, agony and ignominy and torment and weakness, but what in reality was the greatest victory, the greatest triumph, not just in the history of the world, but in the history of the entire cosmos. Because with his dying breath, the very last words out of his mouth, what does Jesus say? It is finished. In the original language, it's just one word, tetelestai. It's a word that literally means it is accomplished, it is completed, it is perfected. In fact, it was a word that they used to use when paying bills. If you owed money and you had a bill that you needed to pay, then when you satisfied the debt, when you fulfilled the requirements, when you um, redeemed the amount that was required, what they would do is on the bottom of the bill, they would write, Tetelestai, it is paid, it is finished. Jesus is saying, I have done everything necessary to restore your relationship to God. All of the sin, it's finished. All of your guilt, it's finished. All of your shame, it's finished. I've done everything necessary. There's nothing you need to do, nothing you need to accomplish. There's no great deed, no heroic task, no noble endeavor. I have done it all. All you need to do is open up your mouth and drink. Friends, that is light years away from every other religion and every other approach to life in the world right now. Every other approach to life basically says, here's what you got to do. If you want to find satisfaction, if you want to find fulfillment, if you want to find God, then here's what you have to do. You have to work really hard, and you can never stop. You can never let up. You can never take your foot off the gas. Here's what you have to do. You have to do everything. It's all up to you, and you are never finished. So, for instance, you know what the last words of the Buddha were? You know, Eastern spirituality in our culture today is pretty chic. And I think for good reason, because it appears to be a religion or a spirituality that's so peaceful, um, that promises great peace to people. And I think people are very attracted by that. But what were the Buddha's last words, his dying words to his followers? There are different ways of of translating it. Uh, One one translation would say, strive with earnestness. Another translation would say, work hard to gain your own salvation. Probably the simplest is just this, strive with ceaselessly. 
Strive ceaselessly. In other words, it's all up to you and you'll never be finished. Jesus says, it's all up to me and it is finished. Everything. I have done everything. There's nothing else you need to do. I have done everything. I have accomplished everything for you so that all you need to do is open your mouth and drink from the fountain of living waters. There is no human institution, no human system, no human ideology or power. Jesus is pronouncing the end of all of that is a way of fulfilling the deepest needs of your heart. He has done what every human system has failed to do, and he's done what even you have failed to do. And that leads to our last point. We've seen the weakness, the failure of every human worldly kingdom. We've seen the triumph of Jesus' kingdom. But lastly, we need to talk about the new life that results. The new life that results. And really, you know, this is every week. How does the cross change your life? What are the implications of the cross for your life? The results, the implications really are endless. But let me flag just a couple that are especially highlighted in this passage. And the first is this. The cross produces a life of patient hope. Patient hope. So for instance, we've just seen that um, investing our ultimate hope in human power is ultimately futile. That, that no human power, no institution, system, ideology has the power to heal your lives or heal the world. Now, there are a few ways of responding to that reality. And one of them is this. You might not believe that. You might still be very optimistic, very hopeful about human power to change the world. And if that is you, then I would just encourage you to keep in the back of your mind as you walk through life the claim of the cross that every human system ultimately doesn't have the power to heal the world. But if you're not as hopeful as other people, there is another response, and it's the way of the soldiers in this passage. You know, the soldiers failed to see the reality of Jesus and what he was accomplishing on the cross, even though it's right there in front of their eyes. They were there right at the foot of the cross. They saw everything that was happening. But, but what were they doing? How did they respond to it? They were gambling. They were casting lots for Jesus' clothing. His clothes, that's all they got out of Jesus because that's all they could see at the time. So for instance, that's an attitude that basically says, look, the world is hopeless, human power is hopeless, Nobody believes in stuff like love, redemption, hope. The world isn't like that. The universe isn't really like that. Anybody who believes in that stuff is a fool. The only response to this world that makes any sense is eat, drink, and be merry. That's all you can expect out of this world. Our, Our only hope, really, the only thing we should be doing is trying to eke out whatever morsel or scrap we can out of this dreary, dark, and disenchanted world because that's all this universe has to offer us. I mean, that response basically is very prevalent in our society today. It's the way of of being jaded and ironic and cynical. Some of you may be in that place today, but there is one more response. Rather than being overly optimistic in human power or rather than being overly cynical about human power and the universe, there's the way of the women at the foot of the cross. I love what it says about them. It says they were standing by the cross. They were standing by what does that mean? Stand by. You know, these women, in just a matter of of hours, really, a couple of days later, 
They were going to be the first ones to go to the tomb. They were going to be the first ones to see the, the Lord Jesus risen from the dead. And they were going to be the first ones to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus to the whole world. But at that moment, as they were standing by the cross, they had no way of knowing any of that. As far as they could see, this was the end. It was over. Jesus was dying. And yet it says they were standing by. They stood by Jesus. Even in the darkness of that moment, they would not let Jesus go. Friends, I want to encourage you this morning. Some of you may be in that place, that place between hope and despair. So whether you've been a Christian for years or, or whether you're just beginning to explore what faith in Jesus really means, a lot of you may be wondering, is there really hope in Jesus? Is there really healing in Jesus is Jesus really the answer to all of my deepest hopes and struggles and fears and dreams? Is he really the answer to all of that? I don't know because everything looks so dark right now. Stand by, Jesus. Stand by. Even when it looks so dark, stand by, Jesus. That's what these women were doing. Stand by. No matter how dark things may look, they would not let go of Jesus. The cross gives you patient hope, and a lot of you need that right now. Don't let the darkness and the despair of the way things look right now keep you from seeing the glory and the triumph that Jesus displayed on the cross, which the world would say was the place of greatest shame and greatest defeat. The cross produces a life of patient hope. But secondly, the cross also creates a community of radical welcome. At the very end here, when Jesus is um, just moments before his death, he looks out and he sees his mother, and he sees one of his disciples, and he says, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. In other words, the cross creates community. It creates family where community and family didn't exist before. But it's even more radical than that. You remember how um, that sign above Jesus' head, what it said? It was addressed to all the nations of the world, nations that hated each other. Romans hated Jewish people. Jewish people hated Romans. Everybody hated each other. And yet the cross is addressed to all of them because the cross says, come and find reconciliation with God and thereby find reconciliation with each other. That's what the cross is telling us. In our world, you know, the forces that are um, pulling us apart, tearing us apart from each other, are always going to be stronger than the forces binding us together. So no matter how much we try to ramp up love and compassion in our own hearts, if your relationship with God is distorted, then your relationships with other people are always going to be distorted too. In fact, your relationships with other people are always going to show you what your relationship with God is really like. It may be great with lots of people, but even if there's a handful of people out there and you just can't stand them, you just hate those people, you just can't abide the thought of these people, that's showing you that it's God you really can't abide. That's showing you the hatred in your heart for God. So even if we try and ramp up love and compassion in our hearts, if your relationship with God is distorted, then no matter how much love and compassion we have, we're always going to end up feeling superior to all of the other people out there in the world who aren't quite as loving and compassionate as we are or who aren't quite as committed to family values as we are or who aren't as woke or evolved as we are. 
And listen, you know, in our society right now, we are seeing the effects of that played out in a massive way. The forces of hatred and polarization in our country right now really are massive, and they are threatening to tear us apart. Friends, listen, I understand, um, by the way, and I also agree with the objection that says that, look, religion um, only makes the hatred and the division worse because it encourages us to, to divide the world between sinners and saints. But when you really see what the gospel is showing you, you see that it is completely different from that paradigm. Because if the truth at the center of your life, if the truth that really shapes your life is that, well, I'm a really good person, and, and therefore I'm saved because I'm a really good person, and I'm not like those other people over there, then yes, that really will bring about hatred and division in this world. And by the way, that's something that both religion um, and secularism share in common. But if the truth at the center of your life is the God of the universe dying for his enemies, that's you and me, if the truth at the center of your life is the gospel, then how in the world can you possibly look at even a handful of people out there in the world and hate them and reject them? The answer is, you can't. Not when you see what Jesus has really done for you. Are there people in this world that you would, you would never welcome them into your home, much less acknowledge their humanity, much less acknowledge their existence? Friends, the, the cross of Jesus Christ swallows all of that up in the love that he poured out for you on the cross. The more you see Jesus thirsting for you on the cross, the more you see Jesus crying out, it is finished for you on the cross, the more that turns you into a person of patient hope and weaves you into a community of radical welcome. Do you have that hope in your life? Are you part of that kind of welcome? The cross does all of that for you and so much more. Let's pray.